Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening. Uh, I'd like to commence by acknowledging that tonight we're here on the land and the waters of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and to pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. The Gadigal people have long and faithfully nourished, cared for and sustained multi-species worlds. And we who have arrived since are gifted with the legacy of this care, a gift for which we might feel gratitude and humility. In this vein, I'd also like to acknowledge the more than human beings who have long preceded our presence and created the wondrous worlds in which we're privileged to live. The University of Sydney dates its inauguration to the year 1850, and at last, about 170 years into its young life, we've finally come to acknowledge that the institution is located in a place that's been a site of research, teaching and learning for tens of thousands of years or since time in memoriam. In acknowledging this presence of place, people and more than human ongoingness, I hope that we might make vividly present for ourselves the presence of Aboriginal custodianship and knowledge. The Gadigal people have never ceded their custodianship of this place and the laws that shape its movements and ours have not disappeared. When we acknowledge the historical and ongoing presence and the rights of Aboriginal people in this way, we have for the most part, since this practice came into place, done so out of a sense of something owed, and rightly so. In these days though, and particularly in the context of what we're speaking about tonight, I think that we turn towards the presence and knowledges of Indigenous peoples and more than human beings of this place with a slightly different intention with a recognition that ways of living in, of and with the more than human world that have been cultivated over millennia might provide orientations for us, the humans who are struggling to go on now, with the types of ways of being that we might assume. My name is Danny Solomai. I'm the co-convener of the Multi-Species Justice Collective and it gives me really great pleasure to welcome so many people here tonight. Tonight's event on biodiversity, extinction and multi-species justice is one of two explicitly outward-facing events that we're holding as part of a two-week broader conversation on multi-species justice. Some of the overarching questions that we've been circling around in our conversations have been questions like, what does justice mean, look like, feel like, and what does justice do? if we take seriously that we live in the presence of many different beings and many different worlds. What is a just way of being human once we acknowledge that we share the world, a world where life making is taking place in many places and from many different perspectives? What does it mean to be called to be a just human being once we cease the practice of discounting or even worse, telling ourselves that some other beings and perspectives aren't lives at all? And of course, these conversations aren't taking place just at any time. They're taking place in these times. Or as the great late Deborah Bird Rose said, 
they are taking place in the time of the great unmaking. What makes those questions that I just said we've been talking about and I know that you're interested in so agonizingly poignant is that we're asking them precisely at a time when many of those lives are not only rendered invisible from the perspective of humans, but are rendered impossible, period, for themselves and for the world in which they've long been embedded. Now, many of you kindly answered our invitation to tell us what it is that you wanted to get from tonight. Um, and of course, while there was a diversity of answers and I can't possibly capture them, I just wanted to make evident with a few words some of the threads that we picked up or that I picked up reading them. Peril, love, hope, hopelessness, fear, confusion, loss, love, longing, a desire for connection. Like all of us, many of you also said that you were looking for solutions and answers. And this we cannot give. Would that we could. What I hope we can offer though, as a response to the astonishing range of emotions that we all feel and the desires that we're motivated by, are some ways of coming close to these times. And this I think is no small thing. Many of us, I know this is true for me, teeter on the edge of wanting to come up close to the great unmaking, but we feel overwhelmed by the terribleness of the greatness. And so we back away, remaining no less afraid, but also lonely and impotent. Our hope tonight is to build some ways of us being present in the times that we're in together with each other and with the more than human beings who are here with us. And from here to find a way of being in these times and going on together. None of this would have been possible without a great deal of support. And I want to acknowledge some of that support. At the institutional level, the multi-species justice project is supported by the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences which chose it as one of its future fixed themes, the themes that the university is invested in because it feels that these are going to be important for the future. We've had generous financial support from the Sydney Social Sciences and Humanities Advanced Research Centre, otherwise known as SHARC, and the Sydney Environment Institute. And of course, Sydney Ideas, which so adeptly brings the inside of the university to the outside where hopefully we will reverberate. At a personal level, I want to particularly acknowledge Gemma Viney, who's the Multi-Species Justice Project Manager, my co-lead, Professor David Schlossberg, and also the Director of the Sydney Environment Institute, the Deputy Director of the Sydney Environment Institute, Michelle St. Anne's, all of the members of the Multi-Species Justice Collective who have been so much part of developing this work, and all of the people who have been part of the events over the last eight days who have so nourished this conversation, I really want to acknowledge your generosity and all of you for being here tonight, which is deeply heartening. The way that the event tonight will work is that we have four speakers. I'm going to introduce them all together so we're not Jack, Jack in the boxing coming up and down. Uh, so we have a feast of speakers tonight. Um, I know because I've been with them for the last few days, 
Uh, the first is Ravi Agarwal. Ravi is an independent artist who's joined us from Delhi. Um, he's also an environmental researcher, campaigner, writer and curator. His work explores questions around ecology, society, urban space and capital. His artistic and activist media include photography, video, installation and public art. And these works have been shown widely throughout the world, including at several Biennale and at Documenta. Ravi is also the founder of the Indian environmental NGO Toxics Link, which has pioneered work on waste and chemicals in India and campaigned on conserving rivers and forests in Delhi. He writes extensively on sustainability issues and was awarded the UN Special Recognition Award for Chemical Safety in 2008 and the Ashoka Fellowship for Social Entrepreneurship on, in 1997. Ravi will be followed by Dr. Sophie Chow. Um, Sophie is a postdoctoral research associate at the University of Sydney's School of Philosophical and Historical Inquiry and the Charles Perkins Centre. Beyond the academy, Sophie worked in international Indigenous human rights organisations, the Forest Peoples Program, work that fed into her doctoral research and she obtained her PhD in anthropology from the University of Macquarie University. Sophie's research explores the intersections of capitalism, ecology and indigeneity in Indonesia with a particular focus on shifting interspecies relations in the context of deforestation and agribusiness development. After Sophie, we'll be joined again by our own Tom Van Duren. It's so great to have such great speakers from the University of Sydney. Tom's an Associate Professor and Australian Research Council Future Fellow at the University of Sydney in the Department of Gender and Cultural Studies and at the Sydney Environment Institute. His research and writing focus on some of the many philosophical, ethical, cultural and political issues that arise in the context of species extinction and the human entanglements with threatened species and places. He's the author of Flight Waves, Life and Loss at the Edge of Extinction, The Wake of Crows Living and Dying in Shared Worlds, which I think is about to come out, and co-editor of Extinction Studies, Stories of Time, Death and Generations. Um, and he's also the founding co-editor of the journal, wonderful journal, Environmental Humanities. Uh, finally, Professor Marisol de la Cadena, from the University of California, Davis, uh, is a professor of anthropology at that university. Her work focuses on questions of what it is to be human and what it is to be, in a, or in more mundane terms, on multi-species life, as well as on politics, indigeneity, and the persistence of colonial violence. Developing her own ideas in close collaboration with Andean communities over the last decade, Marisol's work has been critical in shaping how we think about the challenge of living well in, to borrow a title from one of her books, A World of Many Worlds. Her other books include, and I mention them because their titles are so evocative of her work, Earth Beings and the Uncommons. So, Ravi, thank you. Thank you, uh, Danny. Uh, it's really been an honour for me to be here, to sp be speaking to such a a uh, big and fantastic audience, and also to be part of this uh, really uh, wonderful panel. So thank you for inviting me. Today, on uh, Danny shared with me yesterday uh, the uh, the responses of, of what 
what might be what might be expected from this talk. So I I picked out two specific stories, uh, which I want to share with you quickly in the next few minutes, which have uh, the kind of stories which inform my practice as an artist and an activist, and uh, want to throw them in the box for a future discussion we might have have the panel uh, after after the talks are over. So on to. So I want to talk of two stories, um, and I have uh, titled them Disappearance and Appearance, and then you'll soon know why. The first, the first story I want to share with you is the tragic story of the South Asian vulture. The South Asian vulture, uh, because I was, a, I, I was in my earlier days a very avid bird watcher, spent a lot of time uh, scouring the, uh, the forests in and around Delhi and elsewhere, and also photographing them. And one could see hordes of the South Asian vulture, the three species of South Asian vulture, which exist in the landscape. Uh, by 1980, there were about 40 million of those vultures. By 2000, they had declined to less than 1% of the population, which is uh, a few hundred thousand of them. And at that level of population, they are almost close to their, uh, the, the breeding biology is not sufficient for them. To, so they are on the red uh, endangered lift, uh, uh, list now. And uh, that led me to uh, doing a project in the Natural History Museum, thinking about this idea of extinction. And it's one of the most tragic stories of extinction of recent times. Uh, the South Asian vulture was uh, died to less than 1% of the population, owing to one specific chemical which is introduced as a painkiller, which we all know, uh, which we sometimes use, called diclofenac. And uh, when this a particular painkiller was uh, given to livestock because often livestock uh, are excessively milked and it remains in the carcass. And even if less than 0.8% of the total carcasses had that uh, residue diclofenac, it resulted in this almost total extermination of, uh, of, of, of almost 40 million vultures. The vulture is a species which is mentioned in uh, in the ancient Hindu epic of the uh, Ramayana, uh, it's, it's seen on Cleopatra's clown, uh, crown. It's a species which has been almost uh, unchanged for thousands of years. And within 20 years, because of an industrial chemical, uh, this species beca has become quite extinct. And uh, I believe that similar problems are being faced in other parts of the world as, as well. The uh, story is that uh, despite finding out that this is a drug which destroys and uh, has caused renal failure in the vulture, it, it's been very hard to ban the drug. It's been banned in certain doses, uh, which are veterinary doses, but it continues to be misused and find its way uh, to the vulture populations. Uh, when I was looking at uh, the intervention in the Natural History Museum uh, in 2009, uh, Unfortunately, that old Bauhaus Museum burned down earlier this year, completely gutted in New Delhi. Uh, I was trying to find a pair of uh, breeding vultures to put against the only two vultures which remained, which was in a diorama, the stuffed vultures, uh, which don't exist anymore uh, now. And uh, it was really hard because I had to uh, invoke all my uh, big uh, my friends who were other bird watchers or the networks of people who were uh, living in forests and i found one breeding pair uh, which i then bought in back to the museum the uh, 
the question here which came to my mind is why and how such chemicals are introduced into our lives. Uh, that we have almost 100,000 chemicals and more which are introduced, which we use uh, for good and bad purposes. But uh, almost uh, none of them are tested for the impacts on ecosystems or the non-human uh, animals. Uh, even within, within the testing on, hum on uh, human animals, uh, the testing is pretty limited and often long-term impacts are not uh, bought in. And the whole way in which the valuation is done of what is safe and not safe uh, is the way in which industrial chemistry is dealt with today. And in many ways, what the, what the vulture was dealing with was the, the, uh, the biggest predator of all, which was the uh, human-led industrial chemistry. Uh, the second story I want to share with you is a story of little more hope. Uh, it is a campaign which uh, some of us got involved in. Uh, in between 1994 and 1992 and 1996, there was a campaign to save uh, 8,000 hectares of an ancient forest in the urban metropolis uh, uh, of, of Delhi. The map on the left, which shows you uh, the uh, there's a line on the on the right called the Aravallis. Uh, this is one of the oldest mountain chains in the world. It's more than 1.5 billion years old. It was before the Indian subcontinental plateau hit. Uh, the uh, uh, the plate uh, and form the Himalayas. Uh, so this is a sort of a low-end mountain chain which is degrading slowly, but it's also home to one of the most uh, diverse bio biodiversity hotspots, and it leads into the into the city of Delhi. The picture on the right you see is how the the city is encroaching on what was earlier a natural landscape, and to the extent that what has happened today is as you see on the right, there are four patches of this forest left. And the four patches are uh, distributed uh, through the city. Uh, on the left, uh, you see how, and in the spur, you can see what the patches were before. It was a continuous forest and a continuous ridge, uh, about four kilometers wide. And it, uh, it really formed the topography of the city and also became the, uh, the reason why the river basin was formed. Uh, this particular forest, uh, even today, has a very large amount of birds visiting it. It's almost 300 species of birds recorded during the uh, winter migration and the uh, autumn migration uh, season. Uh, it has uh, a huge amount of uh, biodiversity and its external uh, elements, uh, and external fringes. It also has big cats like the leopards. In fact, leopard sightings have happened as uh, late as last year, as early as last, late as last year. Uh, in 1992, when we were bird watching, we discovered that this forest, which has part of the uh, land planning pool of the city, was going to be handed over to the uh, development authority for uh, conversion into development land. And then some of us got together to see how we can really change uh, this and not have this uh, fantastic uh, whatever remained of the forest to, to, uh, to not to be destroyed. Uh, we started a city long a city. Uh, it was almost like a hopeless event because we felt it was a hopeless event because in a city which now hosts about 15 million people to take out 8000 hectares of land from the land pool is not an easy job. It's it's quite an event uh, in 1996. It's probably 94. It was probably a bit easier because in the last 20 years, the way la uh, land valuation has gone up has uh, be, has changed dramatically. 
it was still not a city with global ambitions. It was still a city within a certain landscape. And now uh, it has become a global city. So what happened then is very hard to happen uh, now. The campaign, which lasted a couple of years, really meant uh, going out and talking to almost everybody in the city, making it their campaign, from school children, from university professors, to uh, uh, bureaucrats, uh, to just anybody we could reach out to, and with the media on our side. Uh, the, one of the important things in the campaign which came up was why, why should we save this forest? What's the functional use of this forest? And uh, the, it was fine to convert the forest into a garden, but not fine to convert it as a forest. And this was a big difference in what we wanted for the forest as a forest in itself, as a space for biodiversity, and what they would agree to was convert the uh, forest into a garden. Uh, fortunately, after um, uh, a, a big campaign, which also went to the Supreme Court of India, uh, it was finally designated as a reserve forest, which essentially meant that it was taken out legally from the development land pool into the forest land pool. And it's much harder to change forest use today. In this picture, you can see that the forest is uh, uh, this is the way part of the forest lo uh, looks, uh, looks. Uh, and uh, on the back is the iconic uh, Qutub Minar, which is an, uh, the defining one of the defining monuments of the city of Delhi. Uh, what I wanted to share with you with these two pictures, two, two stories, is the question of uh, how, do, how are these spaces valued or how are these species uh, like the vulture valued? For the longest time, the vulture was part of a big ecosystem uh, of scavenging. Uh, it was the main uh, way in which uh, dead livestock was scavenged, and it was almost had a great functional value. Uh, later on, when the livestock started being incinerated or being taken to municipal sites, the vulture sort of lost its value in terms of the ecospace. And I think this is one of the reasons why it became so difficult to fight for why the vulture is important. We know very little of uh, what role the vulture plays in the larger biodiversity and the larger ecology uh, of, of the city. The second um, issue I want to uh, uh, raise through these two stories is the idea of visibility and invisibility. At what point does something become visible and what time? what point does it become invisible? From the idea of uh, the ridge uh, forest, uh, it became evident to us that uh, not only is visibility important, but the terms of visibility are very important. So while it was fine to raise the idea of the, uh, keeping the greens alive, uh, if they confirm to a certain kind of usage, which was that when you can have jogging tracks, you can have picnic parks, etc., the moment you fought for or, or argued for a usage, which was just a usage of uh, a, a, a bios, bio, biodiversity space for its own on its own terms, and not a functional space in terms of any human use, it, beca it became very hard to argue, argue for it. I remember we had to do a number of studies, we had to do uh, a number of um, reports to, to say why this is an important area. And uh, to this day, I think uh, the way in which uh, campaigners like me have to argue for a particular kind of um, 
a retention of biodiversity or a particular kind of make a case for, for not cutting a tree, we always have to argue in terms of what functional use it has and not why it has to be there just for its own sake. And I think this is a big shift I've seen uh, over the last 20, 25 years when I was a bird watcher and now that the, uh, uh, the valuation is done in functional and then automatically in terms of uh, monetary terms. And this big shift in terms of how these landscapes are perceived uh, makes it really hard to argue uh, for something which is non-human centric. i just leave it at that. Thank you very much. Good evening. Um, I'd like to thank the organizers of the Multi-Species Justice Symposium for inviting me to speak tonight and thank all of you for being here. Palm oil. It's the world's cheapest and most ubiquitous vegetable oil. It's present in over 80% of all packaged goods on our supermarket shelves, from crisps and ice cream to shampoo and lipstick. It's also used in the manufacturing of commodities including cotton clothes and pasteurized milk. Chances are most of us in the room here have consumed or used palm oil today in some form or another. But few of us would know it. Palm oil is often labeled simply as vegetable oil or goes by one of over 200 different compound names, some of which are up here. Palm oil is everywhere and yet it remains elusive in our everyday lives. Alongside melting glaciers, marine oil spills and sinking islands, large-scale monocrop plantations have become an emblem of the Anthropocene, an era in which humans represent the single most influential geological force on the planet. Indeed, the unprecedented scale and impacts of monocrops have brought scholars to coin the current era instead as the Plantationocene. Within the agribusiness nexus, the oil palm sector is particularly notorious for its destructive environmental effects. Oil palm plantations dramatically reduce forest biodiversity and damage the habitats of endangered species, particularly of megafauna that are already on the IUCN red list of threatened species. Less heard, however, is the human side of the palm oil story. That is to say, the experiences of indigenous peoples across the tropical belt who are being displaced or dispossessed to make way for monocrops. How does deforestation and agribusiness reconfigure indigenous peoples' long-standing relationships to the environment? What forms of justice exist for the plants and animals that agribusiness destroyed, yet with whom indigenous peoples share ancestral kinships, connections to land, and relations of intergenerational care? And just as importantly, what forms of justice exist for indigenous peoples themselves who are routinely marginalized under entrenched and emergent regimes of capitalism and colonialism? To answer some of these questions, we're going to travel this evening some 3,000 kilometers as the crow flies to the district of Merauke in the Indonesian-controlled region of West Papua. Merauke is home to indigenous Marind communities who in the last decade have seen some one million hectares of their lands and forests raised and converted to monocrop oil palm plantations. Marind, with whom I've been working for the last seven years, describe the forest as being alive with the movements of humans and plant and animal kin who together share a common descent from ancestral creator spirits. The interactions of human to these other than human beings are anchored in principles of mutual exchange and care. Plants and animals grow to support humans by providing them with food and other resources. In return, humans must exercise respect and perform rituals as they encounter plants and animals in the forest, recall their stories, hunt, gather, and consume them. 
And it is these reciprocal acts of care that enable humans and other than humans to participate as members of a shared community of life within the forest. No great divide separates or elevates humans from nature among Marind. Rather, Marind come into meaningful being as humans through their bodily and affective relations to sentient other than human beings. Unlike forest plants and animals whose movements and interactions with humans render the landscape alive, all palm grows alone in heavily guarded concessions. Few organisms can survive in monocrops that are characterized by low canopies, sparse undergrowth, unstable microclimates, and a toxic melange of chemical fertilizers. Robbed of their water, nutrients, and symbiotes, plants and animals that once thrived now wilt and starved. As rivers are diverted for irrigation, the land becomes flaky, dry, and wizened. All palm plantations thus convert lively forests into homogeneous monocrops. In doing so, they alienate marind from the multi-species relations that enable them to become human in the first place. Now, over the last decade, a lot of oil palm companies in West Papua have implemented conservation projects as part of their efforts to promote sustainable palm oil production. Yet despite their purportedly beneficial value in protecting biodiversity, these conservation zones are a source of widespread consternation, frustration, and sorrow for Marind. For starters, what distinguishes a zone that deserves to be protected and one that doesn't is ambiguous. Plants and animals, Marind would tell me, depend upon different ecologies that are different but equally important to the subsistence, reproduction, and growth of different species, from swamps and marshlands to mangroves and savanna. While plants and animals find themselves restricted to conservation zones as bounded sites of livability, marin find themselves excluded from these same areas where they once hunted, foraged, and fished. Indeed, conservation areas are often caged off by barbed wire and remain strictly out of bounds for non-company personnel. This limits the capacity of marin to access forest foods and resources. Just as importantly, it negates the possibility of creating shared memories, stories, and relations across species lines. Conservation practices in, in Merauke are problematic for several reasons. Firstly, they assume that humans are always necessarily agents of ecological disturbance and that biodiversity can best be protected by divorcing ecosystems from people. This model is premised on an image of nature as an untouched zone of wilderness, which by definition should be kept pristine and free of human influence. This, of course, ignores the fact that the environment itself has been shaped by Marin's ongoing interactions with and care towards nature, the nature they inhabit and depend upon. In short, then, the violence of conservation lies in its failure to appreciate the symbiotic relationship between humans and the multi-species society that is nature itself. It comes as a little surprise, then, that many Marin consider protected areas and agribusiness projects to be two sides of the same coin. As Josephus, a moral elder portrayed here, once told me, capitalism, conservation, it's the same thing. How then can conservation work more effectively for both humans and other than species in the palm oil sector? A key step is giving a voice to indigenous peoples in the design, implementation, and monitoring of environmental protection schemes. Conservation practices should be informed by the traditional ecological knowledge of local people who have learned over many centuries how to sustainably use forest resources. These conservation practices should also acknowledge that for communities like Marind, the forest is a living space shared by plants, animals, and humans who are bound by emotionally charged and morally valued forms of kinship. Palmer conservation initiatives must also acknowledge the right of indigenous peoples to give or to withhold their consent to all palm development in the first place. 
unless his consent is sought and respected, sustainability will mean very little to those who end up excluded from both nature's exploited and preserved. Finally, greeting the palm oil sector requires that agribusiness corporations, governments, and conservationists rethink the place of humans within the environment and the meaning of nature itself across different cultural and geographic contexts. Doing so may bring the palm oil sector a step closer to reconciling the social and environmental dimensions of oil palm sustainability. As Mercelina, a young woman of a young mother of three from Meralki put it, conservation is not just about nature, conservation is also about people. On a more personal level, the lives and losses implicated in deforestation and oil palm expansion raise questions for us as consumers of palm oil produced in what eco-philosopher Val Plumwood calls the shadow places of industrial capitalism. How should we respond in epistemic, effective and ethical terms to organisms like oil palm that wreak havoc on forest ecosystems and human communities, yet that are themselves exploited by techno-capitalist and human-driven agendas, needs, and visions? Whose lives matter in these capitalist natures where the flourishing of some species drives others to the brink of extinction? And how does one exercise care in thinking with species, human and other, as biological entities, as cultural categories, and always as power-laden hierarchies? These questions, I believe, call for interdisciplinary investigations into the social worlds of capitalism's more than human protagonists, including oil palm itself. They invite us to reflect on our own enlistment in oil palm's lifeway as global consumers of palm oil, even if there is little we can do as consumers to effect change in the global machine of agro-industrial production. Last but not least, addressing these questions requires attending to the voices of indigenous peoples themselves who have always recognized non-human entities as persons and as relations, yet whose own humanity is undermined by entrenched regimes of color and capital. But indigenous peoples, whose traditional territories hold 80% of the world's biodiversity, have been far from passive in the face of adversity. Rather, they have displayed remarkable resilience, courage, and creativity in their struggles to retain their cultural rights environments relations and identities. In this collective re resilience may lie the best hope yet for livable multi-species futures amid and against the blasted landscapes of the Anthropocene. Thank you. Well, good evening, everyone. It's um, lovely to see so many people here. Um, I'm going to talk about snails. Um, so I'm not sure how it happened, but I somehow found myself captivated by snails. To be specific, my fascination really centers on the terrestrial snails of Hawaii. From the beautifully colored Akatanella lila that make their homes in the trees, cleaning rather than eating leaves, through to the ground-dwelling species that consume and re recycle dead matter, species like Laminella sanguinea, which incidentally is equally beautiful, but you wouldn't know it because it covers its shell with a thin layer of its own excrement for reasons that aren't really fully understood. Despite their differences, one thing that these two snails have in common is that they are both critically endangered. The Hawaiian Islands were once home to roughly 800 species of land snails, one of the most diverse assemblages found anywhere on Earth. Sadly, however, most of these species are now thought to be extinct, an estimated 65 to 90% depending on the taxonomic family. In addition, the majority of those species that remain are thought to be threatened with extinction. 
Beyond species diversity, the sheer abundance of snails once found in Hawaii also deserves mention. Individual trees were said to contain hundreds of their brightly coloured forms. One naturalist described them as clusters of living jewels hanging from the vegetation. The cause of this incredible and ongoing decline are complex. In the past, these snails suffered from extensive habitat loss. As land was cleared for farming, ranching, tourism, military and more. For a hundred years or so, a shell collecting craze also decimated many species, a period that some locals at the time referred to as land shell fever. The remaining species today are threatened primarily by introduced predators like rats, chameleons, and most significantly of all, a carnivorous snail, Euglandina rosea, a meticulous and disturbingly efficient predator of snails. There are many stories that might be told about the snails of Hawaii. Indeed, my work is grounded in the understanding that storytelling about extinction and diversity loss is a vital task. Stories can thicken our understanding of what particular extinctions mean and why they matter. They can allow us to acknowledge and maybe even to mourn. Stories can also be transformative. They can draw us into new worlds, into appreciation, into complexity, into responsibility. In the stories that I've told about snails, I've explored the ways in which they craft slimy worlds of meaning for themselves and others, following mucus trails to rest out the hot days together in groups before heading off to feed each night. Like me, you might wonder why the snails all hang out in groups, and there are good reasons, which I won't go into. Equally, I've wondered what all these snails did in the ecosystem. Has their decline impacted on the health of trees or soils? As the biologist Michael Hadfield put it to me, there were just so many of them, it's hard to believe that they didn't do something, ecologically speaking. But sadly, we don't really know and perhaps never will. The puzzle that initially drew me into snail worlds, though, was the question of how they all got to Hawaii in the first place, out to the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Land snails, after all, are not well known for their propensity to undertake long journeys, not by land and certainly not by sea. When we add to this fact their intolerance for salt water, the situation becomes even more confounding. As Charles Darwin summed it up many years ago, land mollusks are a great perplexity to me. Here again, we're unlikely to ever know for sure, but the best guess of most scientists is that the first snails arrived in Hawaii by bird. But amongst all these fascinating stories about snails, those of Kanaka Maoli or native Hawaiians stand out. Without doubt, the most consistent theme across numerous Hawaiian mele, oli, and mo'olelo, that's songs, chants, and stories, is the idea that the snails sing in the forest. But they don't just sing at any old time. Rather, their singing is deeply meaningful, often said to occur as a sign that after a series of adventures, changes, or turbulences, all is pono again, all is righteous, correct, and good. I've spoken to many people about singing snails. Most biologists told me that snails don't have vocal cords and so cannot sing. Some people told me that these stories are more metaphorical. Once upon a time when there were many snails in the forest, the wind whistling over their shells would have made a sound like a melody. Others thought this was extremely unlikely. The shells are too small and snails tend to assiduously keep their openings covered to prevent drying out. Yet other people thought that perhaps it was inconspicuous crickets singing in the forest, mistaken for the brightly coloured snails. 
When I asked Puakea Nogelmeyer, an expert in Hawaiian language and culture, about these traditional stories, he answered with a story of his own. Many years earlier, Auntie Edith Kanaka'ole, the renowned composer and teacher of hula, told him and a group of her chant students that scientists had taken her to their laboratory to explain to her how impossible it was biologically for a snail to sing. He continued, Auntie Edith's, Edith's take on that was, isn't that sad? They won't sing for the scientists. <laughs> there are so many fascinating insights, I think, condensed into this statement. Importantly, Auntie Edith reminds us that the world, that other living beings that comprise it are not objects transparent to our gaze, readily revealed. There's much that we do not and cannot know about others. For this reason too, we need multiple stories as well as a general openness to others' understandings and a humility about our own. Our stories can never hope to capture all of what matters for and about another or their loss even someone as seemingly simple as a snail. The sto this story, I think, also reminds us that extinctions matter differently, often unequally. What does the decline and disappearance of snails mean to people who have, in who have inherited these stories? What becomes of stories of singing snails when there are no more left in the forest? Extinction ripples out into the world in myriad ways, cutting across imagined distinctions between ecology and culture, Good stories help us to see and become responsible for these ripples. But these snail stories are also shifting as new relationships and significances emerge. Over the last couple of years, I've learned more about the work of people like Uncle Sparky Rodriguez and Uncle Vince Dodge and the group Malamamakua. Since the overthrow of the Hawaiian monarchy and the subsequent colonization of the islands by the United States in the late 19th century, more and more land has been swallowed up by growing military bases and facilities. For decades now, Malamamakua has waged a sustained struggle against the US Army to reclaim, reclaim Makua Valley on the island of Oahu, a sacred space that has long now been used for live fire training and munitions detonations. Snails have been a key component of this work. While cultural sites and practices long went unacknowledged, the US Endangered Species Act gave these people a basis for a lawsuit and the opportunity to bring the army to the negotiating table. In no small part, it is a, as a result of Malamamakua's snail actions that the military is now one of the largest funders of snail conservation in the islands and no bullets have been fired in the valley for over a decade. The significance of snails takes new form here as they join in efforts to resist the destruction of Hawaiian land and culture. I hope that through these short glimpses into some of the many stories that lie coiled up in the tiny shells of snails, your interest has been captured by them too. These are stories of loss and struggle for ongoing life, of meaning making, of relationships of care and disregard. There are no simple answers here but these stories carry with them the possibility that we might learn new modes of appreciation, of curiosity, and perhaps even responsibility for the many incredible forms of life that are today slipping away much too quickly. Thank you. Thanks. Um, it's an honor to be here. It's an honor to address you. And I guess I'm going to take you onto a different region of the world and also move us away from 
stories to some abstraction uh, and a little blasphemy. So I want to start with these two quotes. 1584, 1737. Cristobal de Albornoz, an extirpator of idolatries that roamed the Andes trying to destroy idols. And he was too concerned that he couldn't destroy the idols because the idols were mountains. So he thought it was impossible to transform Indians into true believers of the true God because superstition could not be eradicated. Idols were not these small things, small dolls, but these huge mountains that could not be destroyed. They called those mountains, he called those mountains wakas, which was the word that uh, local people used to refer to the mountains. And he thought he would be defeated in that purpose. And he was, but not only. The second quote I'm not going to read to you. It comes from Linnaeus. And it is a continuation of the first quote and its secularization. The first quote is, uh, belongs to a process that I think made the one world in which we now live. And it made that one world through faith, religion, which was not even called that in the 16th century. Uh, the second quote secularizes that making of the one world world, and it also makes a reference to God as the creator of the world in which species lived. So uh, I want you to consider these quotes both for uh, their continuities and their discontinuities. And between both quotes and throughout the period, I want you to think about the ships that made the journey through the Middle Passage. And I want to suggest that that journey was a transition, not between the quotes, but into the world that those, wor uh, that those quotes contributed to create. The second quote is very clearly about classification. And it is about classification that I want to use my 10 minutes to talk about. Using Donna Haraway's suggestion that nothing comes without its world, I want to make the very obvious insinuation that the order of things that separated humans from non-humans, life from non-life, slaughtered the latter, non-life as geos, organized life as bios, divided it into species, and also divided it into animals, plants, and humans, and ordered the latter into hierarchies of race, gender, sexuality, class, geography, education, all of these 
came with a specific world, the world implicitly, implicitly identified with the Anthropos. John Law calls this the one world world. <clears throat> the two quotes in the slide, I've already said these, contributed to make that world. The second quote, and I've already said it, secularized early faith-based colonial practices of difference. The classification that made species also contributed to what slowly through historical and still ongoing negotiations of rules of faith and rules of biology became the racialized hierarchies we currently inhabit. Manifesting that all humans belong to one species, Linnaeus used skin color and geography to organize a classification that made one world divided into regions and races. Countless comments have been written about this classification considered as, a founding, as founding the color-coded colonial order of the world, that it, one world that it also made. Central to that classification was the division between nature and society or nature and culture. That this division historically enabled race and racism, the division between nature and society, that this division enabled race and racism is a widely accepted proposition. This division served to exclude from society those that the notion of race located closer to, cult to nature. This is a widely accepted proposition idea. Yet, and this is where the blasphemy starts, I want to propose that race could have also been an efficient tool to impose inclusion into nature and culture of collectives that did not make themselves through it. So race ranks and, and excludes from society those humans deemed too natural while also serving the the inclusion of collectives that did not make themselves through the nature and culture divide into that divide. Hidden in its paradox, race, a hierarchically a hierarchical ordering device, homogenized worlds into one. The practices of people recalcitrant to the division were deemed dangerous to civilization and therefore deserving of destruction. Deny existence to the disobedient world in practices to make man. Let me illustrate this and let's go back to those ships that made the uh, passage, um, the, the journey through the Middle Passage, the journey from Africa to the Americas. And I'll repeat, nothing comes without its world. Although some worlds are not allowed to come with the bodies that bring them. Embarking in those ships were not only people, slaves to be, but also worlds. Yet what disembarked were bodies, colored black, classified as race. The worlds that came attached to those bodies were not allowed to be. Obviously, the denial to their existence did not exhaust those worlds. They survived it. Uh, yet, the practices 
that survived the denial of the world were once again captured by our concepts. Those practices became magic or primitive religion, sometimes allowed to be, sometimes persecuted and criminalized. As an inclusionary ontopistemic tool, race partnered with culture, a concept without which race never was, to translate irrational excesses as beliefs and rank them as distance and proximity from nature or humanity. The morale of the translation was to cancel those excesses. As beliefs, they were false, and as fal false, they were pernicious. Even critiques of segregation participated in the, into the inclusion, uh, in the inclusion into the nature and culture divide enabled by the race-culture partnership. A very well-known phrase in the United States is kill the Indian to save the man. And doing the hierarchical difference of the hierarchical differences race made is of course necessary. Yet addressing race only as a difference maker may be insufficient. If the purpose is decolonial, world's denied existence need acknowledgement. And the denial of these worlds was achieved through a large extent through the homogenizing capacities of race. Similarly, scholarly practices that decenter the anthropos by connecting the divide between nature and humanity may also be insufficient if they continue the classificatory practices that contain a species what may be not only such because they may also become through practices that exceed the practice of nature and humanity. And I am going to leave us with an example of an entity that exceeds geology while also being geology, this mountain, which in addition to being a mountain is also an earth being. And I want us to call attention to the violence that, that can be done, the violence that can be done if we only consider this a mountain, the epistem onto epistemic violence that can be done to this entity if we only consider it geology a mountain. I'll leave it there. Uh, they were such extraordinarily rich uh, engagements and presentations. I'm not going to do them the violence of trying to summarise them or integrate them. Let's make a couple of comments and then ask a question. So. Common to a, to much of what you were saying was that the division between nature and culture is the, the basis of much violence. And at the same time, Ravi, you made clear that the onslaught of commodification means that increasingly we can only value the non-human if it somehow serves our purposes. And I think there's an interesting tension here. Um, and that... that that there is, although the although the the topic is extinction, I think we put in the in the title biocultural diversity. So this is not just about what's happening to the more than human world. There's an entanglement that's unevenly spread, right? So the 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 devastation is not equally borne by all human beings. Certain human beings, in particular, those human beings who refuse the nature culture divide, are the ones who are. Uh, 
mostly the, the victims of violence. Um, so I wanted to ask each of you to reflect in some way, given that we're not natural scientists, we're humanities scholars and, and Ravi, an artist. Um, how do you see the role of storytelling, research, artistic representation, both in making apparent the invisibilities that that are at least major contributing factors to the persistence of violence. And I don't just mean the invisibilities of uh, particular species like snails that we may not see, but the invisibilities that are also hierarchies, uh, that vultures just don't matter because we see them in a particular way or Indigenous people are seen in a particular way. And, the, and so how do we bring story, research, artistic representation to, to come to Marisol to shake it up such that the world can start to occur differently to us and then we can respond differently to the world? I guess I sat in the wrong seat to, <laughs> to have time to think about that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, th I think that a lot of my work is, is grounded in a, a conviction that storytelling can do something important, potentially transformative. And stories, of course, can be enrolled to do all sorts of work that we may or may not like. Um, and, and I think stories are enrolled to do that work. So, so I think there's, <coughs> a, there's even more need for us to tell uh, the kinds of stories that, that create the kinds of... Uh, possibilities, <coughs> the kinds of, of worlds that we would like to see. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't think there's a, a simple answer there. I think for me, thinking about extinction, um, I, I came to work on extinction 15 or so years ago thinking that there was you know, this thing called extinction and that we could um, decide whether or not it was a bad thing or a good thing. Or, and I, I was a philosopher. We could make ethical arguments about why extinction was bad. And I realised the more I did field work, the more I, I talked to communities and to scientists, that every extinction was its own particular, unique unravelling of, of possibilities uh, and also opening up of other kinds of, of possibilities. So each of them was, was radically unique. And so for me, storytelling became the only way to handle that, to deal with that kind of complexity, to, to try to burrow down into and make sense of um, the entangled significance um, it's the way that Debbie Rose and Matt Trelew and I have, have started to think about it, the, the kinds of significance that cut across ecological, cultural, all of these different terrains. So um, that's why storytelling. Uh, and I think there are uh, lots, there's lots more I could say about the, the kinds of ways we tell stories and the need for inclusivity and the need to, to think about our work as academics as not just telling our own stories, but uh, creating spaces for others to tell stories. Um, for those marginalised voices um, for whom extinction often matters in very immediate ways. Um, so I think there's a politics and questions of justice around um, our storytelling questions too. Um, I think I'm saying too much. No, no, no. I, I want to actually want to ask you something because I know that, uh, that, that people come with a desire to be able to do something. And, and so I just was wondering if you might mention the storytelling archive that you've started that, that people might want to contribute to and also open up to other people whose, mm. as you said, the, 
who gets to tell stories is one very unevenly distributed. So mm. if you could say a word about that. Thank you. I'd completely forgotten to give this a plug to a captive audience. Um, so this is a <laughs> is a new project that is at um, at extinctionstories.org, if you want, want to go there. Um, it's just um, in the last week or so uh, been posted. And at this stage, it's a very modest archive of five stories from around the uh, from around Oceania, um, but it's it's uh, we hope a growing project um, that is a, a space for people to tell their own stories uh, in their own, in whatever media they like about what extinctions mean in their landscapes for them, um, and it's a jumping off point um, for collaborations with museums and artists and and others to to get those stories out into the world doing different things. So uh, it's yes part of this same politics, I guess, and commitment to to circulating stories. Um, so if anyone would like to contribute or talk about collaborations or things, uh, please do get in touch. And please don't limit yourself to storytelling. I also meant other forms of representation, narrative mm -hmm. and artistic practice. I think uh, as an artist, uh, representation is one of the most difficult issues to deal with. Uh, because for me, everything's about uh, uh, positioning and location, locating where you, where you start working from, what, what is it that I'm seeing and where I'm locating in that seeing and what, uh, through what lens I'm seeing. And I think that if, for example, the word environment is so omnipresent and ubiquitous that it's lost all meaning, you can do so much harm by being an environmentalist mm. because you don't know what you're stepping on. And the assumption that it means one thing to everybody is what an artist also has to be careful about because everything is, has deep political locations and representation is rife with that idea of what is the location in that. The gaze is so important. So uh, how, do you, how do you show bring the world which people carry us into something, into some meaning for somebody or meaning for yourself? I think it's a, firstly a deep investigation of with your own self. It's not an easy, easy task. It's very difficult, actually. It's uh, even if you create it like an assemblage, it's it's a it's a complicated. What assemblage are you creating? What are the relationships you're creating by creating another assemblage, which you want to put out in the world as artwork? You know, what does it mean? What's the relationship? What does it represent? What is hiding? So we are caught in this, I, I feel I'm caught in this constant investigation and constant uh, inquiry into my own gaze, my own position into something. And it, it's that process which becomes more important for me than what I'm finally putting out. And so there's always this vulnerability about what is being put out there and this uh, that that kind of um, nebulous relationship which you want to sort of display. And I think for me, showing that vulnerability and being part of that uh, that uncertainty about what is 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 really the thing. you know if if I can do that, uh, the unfinished knowing, I think that is really something where I feel uh, I can do something. Uh, there are no certainties anymore because the more I know, the more I explore, the more difficult it is to mm. know anything. Mm. 
I mean, look at the two days we've had here mm. about, I've suddenly started thinking of biodiversity as a problematic term and categories as a, as a, as, as a problematic term. So we get so, we are so, I think I'm so um, colonized that to decolonize myself, even as a post-colonial subject, mm. is really a complicated journey, you know? And so for me, a lot of the work, besides being, you know, trying to do something, is also a space of self-reflection of, of this constant. And that's the space which I, I try and inhabit more and more, in a sense, which also leaves me to absorb from everything. From everything if I could just before you just I just want to reflect back that uh, one of the themes that's come out very strongly in our conversations the last week has been uh, the the ethical work of staying with uncertainty and not knowing and what we see in our politics is that precisely the opposite happens because the ground is so shaky underneath us. There's, uh, I think that's one of the reasons for this swing towards the big man who has the answers, which leads us precisely in the direction that we don't need to, that we need not to go. And so part of the ethical work, I think, in the, and what you're saying so beautifully, the work of the artist is to create the possibility of us staying, as Donna Haraway said, staying with the trouble, mm. staying with the uncertainty. That doesn't mean not acting. Mm. But it means acting with this, with the sensitivity that this isn't about a single right way forward. I think, sorry, we're just all porous beings, you know, even physically, even in terms of our mm. material, non-material selves. We are porous in so many ways, both metaphysical and physical ways. You know, we are we are so porous. Mm. So. I'm so glad you asked that question. Um, stories were central to my fieldwork among Marind communities um, because um, as a good anthropologist, I went out there with my notebooks to try and classify and identify all different plant and animal species that were in the forest. And nobody was interested really in lists and categories and labels. And I kept asking, what's this called? What's this called? And I remember one of my friends asking me, if I ask you your name and you tell me your name, do I actually know anything about you? And I realized probably not. She said, well, what's your story? Tell me, and you know, they use the word story. And every life form is a storied being that comes with its storied world. Um, so species are storied as collectives, as individuals, and as relations. Um, so the, the, the challenge, I suppose, for me is then how do I, as a medium, really, I, I, I'm, I see my role as communicating the mm -hmm. stories of these, of these communities, what kind of translation work or do I need to do um, in the face of state, corporate, academic audiences um, who may not want to hear songs and sounds and stories? Um, so it's a question of, it's a political and strategic act of reframing stories to be, for them to be strategic um, and effective. Uh, for me, another aspect of storying um, that came out in my research was using other senses than necessarily the written script. So a lot of my fieldwork involved mapping. So walking with community members to map the landscape. Um, and Marin map space through sounds, sounds of birds, sounds of wind, sounds of water. And to map, you follow the sounds of species as they travel the forest. So maps are soundscapes mm. more than visual points, visual coordinates. 
how do you then tell those stories in writing? How do you shift from one sensory medium to mm-hmm. another? Again, that's that's a difficult um, work, but one that's also generative mm-hmm. as you talk across worlds and across storied existences. And I think writing stories is also always a sort of activist stance um, in terms of which stories you choose to tell, mm-hmm. which you don't. Um, corporations are storied too, as are NGOs and governments. Which stories do we choose, as Haraway put it, is always a political epistemic um, and effective choice. Mm, thank you. Um, I think that uh, I would say that the way I engage in what we call research, which is a word that I'm disliking more and more, I don't want to replace it, but uh, maybe displace it a bit, suspend it a bit. But the way in which I engage in it is by taking risks. And um, I like to find and invent new ways of talking and writing, alter grammars, so that maybe in doing that, I can find ways of saying something else, something that is not repeating what has been uh, said, that doesn't continue, that doesn't accumulate, but that maybe opens possibilities for thinking in a different way. Um, And uh, I think one of the things that I try to do is to to not shy shy away from complexity and to avoid units. This is something that I've said uh, in these two days, and I've heard a lot of people doing that in these two days that we've been together. And one of I am an anthropologist, and one of the things that, uh, as anthropologists, as uh, as an anthropologist, I dislike the most is when we, the anthropologist, speaks in a us them language. And I'm trying to replace uh, that us them language by the idea of a complex we. A complex we that um, includes us and what we are not. Because that which we are not is also us. Uh, These different worlds that we inhabit are interconnected. They are not billiard balls. It's a we, but it's a we that's not a seamless us. It's a we that has internal divergences. And as a complex we with internal divergences, I think that we might overcome a subject that studies an object because the subject position can be exchanged, not necessarily reciprocally, but as a conversation goes on. So I think I, and storytelling I think is a very, is a very good technique to do that. Uh, storytelling 
and I'm thinking here Walter Benjamin. Storytelling is also uh, one of those uh, genres that never leaves place, that always carries with it the, the fingerprints, the voice, the words of the teller. And the teller can also be that complex we, not just the one writing the story, but the one listening to the story that is being told. So the storyteller is the one that tells the story to the one that's going to write the story that may not be the same person. Anyway, uh, I think I'll leave it here. Um, you know, I think though something <coughs> Marisol said today in a really beautiful paper she gave is that um, it's it's not one and it's not many and it's what we have in common is this. <laughs> what we have in common is this. We're all we're all creatures of the earth and there's only one. Um, at the beginning I used two words amongst many others, which were gratitude and humility. And I think for four such extraordinarily accomplished human beings, you embody gratitude and humility and I'm very grateful to you for that and I'm and as I said I'm enormously grateful that so many people wanted to come and have this conversation with us please have the conversation with the people who you live with who you share space with who you sit next to the bus on um, and and continue the conversation and thank you very much thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series for more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.